Uh, sorry for the confusion over the New Testament reading, but Luke chapter 12 had a number of important points that I wanted us to read it before the sermon. Since I don't quote it, I just refer back to it. And so you should have read Luke chapter 12. It's helpful. Have you ever in your life thought about if I just had a little more, I'd be good to go? I just need a little more money. I just need a little more submission of my children. I just need a little more respect at work, a little more honor in life. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to be one of those billionaires who has so much money they couldn't spend it all? I seem to remember reading that when Bill Gates was the most richest man in the world, he could give every single individual in the world $15 and still have millions left over. Uh, but sometimes we think, you know, I, I'm almost there. I just need a little more. I just have to have a little extra. I'm just not quite satisfied. The preacher speaks to that today. We're in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, or 5 now. Sorry, and if you'll open your Bibles there, we'll be looking at verses 8 through, or not 8, 10 through 17. I forgot to update the title on my message as well as the bulletin. forgot to get updated so we're a little behind. But, you know, think about the, that need, that desire, just to have a little more, just to get a little extra, and we'd be there. And how that has worked out in your life. Let's read chapter 5 of Ecclesiastes. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know what they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let your mouth not lead you into sin. And do not say before the messenger, it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase, the words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed for the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there is yet a higher one over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. No, he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage is there to their owners but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of the laborer, whether he eats little or much. But the full stomach of the rest will not let him sleep. The rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his own hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad, bad venture. 
And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, so shall he go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and in much vexation, sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil which one toils under the sun for the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them, to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. For he will not much remember those days of his life, because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we know, Lord, that we all sometimes struggle with our finances, with our lot in life. And Lord, we pray that from your word we will find wisdom. That we will not see ravings of a depraved madman or a depressed person. But see this as your inspired and holy word. And interpret it, Lord, to transform our lives that we might live according to your principles and for your kingdom and for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we come again to the subject that we've talked about a number of times. We've talked about it a number of times because it comes up a number of times because God repeats it over and over again in Scripture. And God repeats it over and over again in Scripture because it never seems to really sink through our thick skulls and get all the way to our heart. And that is that the love of the things of the world is vanity. Those things are empty. They're never able to fulfill the promises they make. The promise of wealth, the promise of property, the promise of things, the promise of honor, the promise of glory. None of those things fill that hole in our heart. I remember shortly after I became a Christian, somebody said that we have a God-shaped hole in our heart and nothing but Christ can fill it. I thought they were kind of being silly, and I still think they're being a little silly. It's not in Scripture that way, but it, there's a reality to it as well. You know, man was made to fellowship with God. What is our whole purpose in life? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. And absent of that relationship, we have this void that we cannot fill. And we look to things. We look to money. We look to worldliness. And verse 10 says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. No, he who loves wealth with his income. Now, there are a lot of quotes about money in the world. And I want to think of this from a worldly perspective for a moment. There's never enough. I don't know how to make more, or I can't make more. I can't afford this. I can't afford that. I need a little more. Right? My boss would have agreed with J.D. Rockefeller, my old boss, you remember Rockefeller, the original, was the founder of the Standard Oil Company, the first billionaire in America. And at one point, the richest man on earth. A reporter asked him, how much money is enough? And he calmly replied, just a little bit more. My boss said that his, or I forget who it was that said it, but my boss quoted that his gross habits exceeded his net income. 
his whole life, no matter how much more he made, and how much costs were reduced, something else always came in to fill his desire. I need, oh, you know, now that I've got a bigger house, because he moved to Cincinnati from Boston, I need a better, better car, and I need to put my kids in a better school, and I need to have better toys. And there was never enough money. Bill Gates was asked that same question, and I couldn't find the quote, but he said something to the effect that it wasn't the having that was important, it was the getting. You always want to get him, you know, stay hungry, get more. A British economic historian named Robert Skidelsky wrote that it is not just that we want more, but that we want more than others. Now, this was earlier in Ecclesiastes, actually the same statement. So at the same time, they want to have more than us. And this fuels the endless race. And it's true. You know, our desire is not just for money, for comfort. It's often in competing. We, we say in America, keeping up with the Joneses, keeping up with the guy next door. We want more. He said capitalism rests precisely on this endless expansion of wants. That's why for all its success, it remains so unloved. It has given us wealth beyond measure, but has taken away the chief benefit of wealth, the consciousness of having enough. Come back to this thought later. I would say capitalism can be defended biblically, but godless capitalism certainly suffers from that flaw. Marxism, however, can't be defended publicly or biblically, and it's always godless. Karl Marx said religion is the opiate of the people. You know, it's useless, it just keeps them drugged and down, and they never are able to succeed. Because I would argue Marxism is the crack or the meth of the people leads to great violence and hatred and rage and bitterness and jealousy over the people who work hard and succeed. Anyway, we're not going to go down that rabbit hole today. <laughs> Money and wealth are often biblically represented the same way as here in Ecclesiastes, that the love of them, the desire for them, the hope in them, the trust in them is vanity. John the Apostle the apostle of love, as he's sometimes called, wrote, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. First John 2, 15-17. Now, it's important to think about that. The things that we are needing today, the things that we are hoping today, the things that we're trusting in today, the world, from a worldly point of view, they are transient. The you know, 6,000 more or less years of existence of this world is tiny compared to the 10,000 times 10,000 years of eternity. And we will soon forget these things and the meaninglessness of them. God knows we need food and shelter and clothing, and God sees to those things generally. We don't need to worship them as though they were the end. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. It's a worldly point of view that life is going to end. If I, you know, I can't take it with me in the grave, I might as well spend it all and enjoy it here. Very sad world. 
Solomon, the wisest mere human ever to live, certainly understood John's point. And I think he's bringing out the same point John was here in the scripture, which is to be expected as they're both inspired by the same God to write on the same matter. The Bible brings this vanity, this emptiness, this meaningless, and really this sinfulness of the love of money and the trust and hope in money and material possessions. It brings it up over and over again. You remember the parable we just read in Luke chapter 12, verse 16 through 21. The parable of the rich man whose land produced plenty. And he thought, oh, I'm good for years. I'm safe. I'll have all that I need now, and I can rest and be healthy and happy. And his life was demanded from him because he did not glorify God. He he was not rich to God. Psalm 49, we've read many times part of this, but I want to read the whole context today, 5 through 10 of Psalm 49. Why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me, those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches? One of the problems the rich always have is to get rich, they have to step on a few toes or crush a few heads, climb on the top of a pile of bodies to get to the top. People they've cheated, people they've hurt, people they've killed. The psalmist says, why should I worry about those who boast, trust in their wealth and boast in the abundance of their riches? Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price for his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. There's no way man can pay for sins, even multi-billionaires, if they give it all to God, they can't buy freedom from hell. Contrary to the Catholics' belief that if you give me a little money, you're good to go. I remember reading the confession of a a man who was a mobster in Italy. He'd been assigned to murder somebody. And so he went to confession and said, I'm going to murder somebody, but I don't want to go to hell. What do I need to do? And he was given an amount of money that he should pay to the church to be absolved of the sin of murder in advance. That doesn't work. There's never enough is what the Bible says. Never enough that he should live on and forever and never see the pit. For even the wise die, and the fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Very much the same thing that the book of Ecclesiastes is teaching us. They cannot get eternal life with all their money. They cannot buy happiness. They cannot buy forgiveness. Uh, Many a rich man has said, oh, I'm happier because I have more money. The vanity of that is pointed out here by Solomon. Solomon writes, do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone, for it suddenly sprouts wings, flying like an eagle towards heaven. That is not in Ecclesiastes, but in Proverbs 23, 4 through 5. He wrote that book as well. There's certainly a lot we can say about the teaching of God concerning money. Greed is called idolatry. Men love the things they can have, and they want more and more and more. Why? Because it never satisfies. It is never enough. Part of the problem is seen in verse 11. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. What advantage of their owner but to see them with his eyes? 
Everybody wants a sugar daddy and the people who will take your money increase. But if you think about you know, Solomon, the king of Israel, how many hundreds of cattle a day was the provision for his, his entourage? You know, the people who had come to him and were doing this or doing that and they're just hanging around and praising him. You know, hundreds of cows. The more wealth you have, the more people you need to take care of you. you know, the more, more you work, the more hours somebody works at their job, the more they need to hire somebody to come in and be a maid, hire somebody to take care of their kids. I remember somebody going over the money once for young couples who were not making huge amounts of money Having the wife work was actually not advantageous, even though she made as much as the husband. One of them could stay home. You didn't need the second car. You didn't need to hire babysitters. You didn't need to pay cleaners. You didn't spend as much money. I remember, I don't know if you ever heard the term dinks, dual income, no kids. Very popular today, or at least it was in my day. They're married, they have two incomes, they have no kids to spend the money on. They should be doing much better. They have only one house to pay for. And so they should be in better financial shape. They have two piles of money now, but they still have no money. What's the problem? Well, the first is you both have shovels and you both have, to, you've both taken money out of, the pay, out of the pile of money to pay for your expenses, your cars, your clothes for work, your trips, your other things. And of course, either the husband or the wife usually complains the other has a bigger shovel that's taken more than their share. Uh, the reality, the core of the problem is it doesn't matter how much they have, it's not going to satisfy them if that's where their hope is. If that's what pl we're placing our trust in, our confidence in, our desire in, oh, if I just had a slightly better house, if I just had a newer car that I didn't have to fret over whether it breaks down, if I just had a better paying job, a little more money in the bank, a more secure retirement so I could retire at 60, it doesn't satisfy. Our growth desires always exceed our net income if we're living for the worldly things. It makes a curious statement. Sweet is the sleep of the laborer who eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Think about the laborer, the worker. Don't they have as many concerns as everyone else? I might get laid off. If I get injured, I could lose my job. I remember overhearing some people talking at Walmart, employee and a former employee. She was fired because she got COVID and missed more than 10 days over the course of one year. You know, so you got a whole winter to worry about. And she'd missed more than 10 days, and after four years, they fired her. You know, certainly, the workers have a lot of stress and a lot of anxiety. But I think what he has in mind here is the hard, heavy labor under the sun, the working in the fields. If you've ever done a hard day, a full day of labor, had a job where you do that every day, you know, work eight hours of strenuous physical labor out in the heat, what happens when you go to bed? You sleep like the dead. <laughs> I never sleep better. In fact, I never slept better than when I was in the military doing basic training. You know, you're moving from dawn till dusk more than I'd ever moved in my entire life. And time came for bed, head on the pillow, lights out, I was done. Wake up in the morning, what happened? The night was too short. 
I, I think that's the kind of idea he has in mind here. The one who labors, doing honest physical work with his hands, sleeps like a rock. It's not that he doesn't lust for more and not that he doesn't have anxieties, but that his exhaustion brings him sleep. The rich are in sleep whether he's hungry or not, because normally if you're hungry, you can't sleep, right? That's what midnight snacks are all about. We don't admit to those. <laughs> the rich, however, they're worried about their wealth, their prosperity, something will happen. All that they've gained and built with their own power and their own hands can be destroyed by power that's outside of their hands. Uh, this is a, a real problem for many people. If they can't control everything, they get out of control. Uh, from the micromanaging bureaucrat who wants to control everybody around them so that everything works out smoothly to just the person who's fretting about, you know, I've got my, my entire retirement is in stocks. I remember one of my coworkers told me he wanted to retire when he hit 55 or whatever the retirement age, minimum retirement age was at the time, because he had over a million dollars in his GE retirement plan, his 401k. Yep, then the market fell, well, GE stock collapsed and everything GE was involved in collapsed and he now had about three, four hundred thousand dollars and he couldn't afford to retire. Uh, that fear, that anxiety haunts people who are putting their hope and their trust in the future. My future is secure because I earned the money in my retirement account. You know, how many people have lost their pension in America over the last 30, 40 years because the pension account went bankrupt because the company went bankrupt? You know, they worry about that, they fret, it doesn't allow them to sleep. Too many things are outside of their control, too much danger of setback and destruction. Psalm 127 verse 2 says, It is vain that you rise up early and go to bed late, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sheep. You know, the godly is not really mentioned here in Ecclesiastes too much. We're pointed to him periodically throughout the book, but the third part, you know, the, the rich godless and the poor godless and the godly. We should think just for a moment about them. That verse 127 was telling us the anxieties about life are vain because God cares for his sheep. We have God on our side, God who has made many precious promises to us that he will care for us. You know, do Christians die? Yes. Are, do they die of starvation or exposure because they become homeless? It happens. Are they arrested and persecuted and killed? All the time. That's not what the promise is about. But in general, God takes care of his sheep on earth and he certainly will take care of them in eternity. Dying under persecution and, and suffering brings us simply to heaven. Proverbs 6, 20 through 23 says, My son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart always. Tie them around your neck. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. When you're awake, they will talk with you. For the commandment is a lamp and, a teaching, and the teaching is a light. And the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. And the believer sleeps better because we have peace with God and hope in him. 
Psalm 3, 1 through 6 says, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there's no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter up of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. A bit dramatic for our lives, but you know, we, we have all these problems. We have all these adversities and adversaries. I've shared before about life at GE was like an addition of Survivor. They could have had Survivor, you know, they had Survivor Island and Survivor this, Survivor GE. It would have been the most brutal of them all. We had nothing but enemies. Everybody needed to prove themselves better than you or they might get laid off. The Christian does not need to stress as much about those things. We have God on our side. We do not be afraid, need to be afraid no matter what is happening in the world, no matter what is happening around us. God will care for us. Even if it means we die here, we have eternity with him. Unbelievers are troubled by the fears of losing, losing the things they love, the things of this world. The believers should not be worried about losing what they love because what they love should be God in his kingdom. Continuing with verse 13, there's a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Oh, Solomon expounds on all the grievous evils of this life separated from God throughout his book of Ecclesiastes. Thankful that God has written this for us. Uh, the verse continues, Riches are kept by their owners to his hurt. Legal issues often come with the love of money. Right? How do we get rich? Well, most of the rich people have gotten rich by cheating and deceiving people. Hate to pick on Trump, but he ran, what? Gambling organizations and real estate investments. That's how he became so rich. You know, what do you do in those? Well, you're, you're building a confidence game. They have confidence in you. They have confidence in their luck, and they gamble, and you get your share. Confidence that your real estate will become great, and they'll earn money. Many don't. Shared before with my friend in Massachusetts who bought a, a $350,000 condo and rented it out after she got married. And when she decided to sell it, it was just about the time the Berlin Wall fell and all the Massachusetts jobs, which were mostly military, suddenly you know, half the, half the high-earning people were laid off. They were, they were selling unsold condos, new, unsold, for 85000 She had you know, a couple of hundred thousand dollars of debt that couldn't be, had nothing to back it. Uh, we run into those problems and we worry about them. She'd been taken advantage of by buying something like that. When we love the riches, when we have love of the things this world has to offer, all of our relationships and our families suffer. Now, what do we do to succeed? Well, you need to learn to work longer hours. You need to be stingy with money. No, no, I'm going to save that for a rainy day so I don't have to work when I'm 55. We sometimes get into lying and deceiving, and that brings with it its own legal problems, along with being hated and despised. 
And so it works to our disadvantage, to our harm. Think of the child who lives without a parent because they're working all the time to make the family rich. My father worked double shifts for a decade because he wanted to buy a house. We barely saw him. And shortly after he bought the house, my mother divorced him. Wealth saved up to his own destruction. The friend that has no time for you anymore because work is important and they're working long hours and they can't spend the time with you. But I also mentioned being stingy. Proverbs 23, 6 through 8 says, Do not eat the bread of a man who is stingy, and do not desire his delicacies. For he is like one who is inwardly calculating. Eat, drink, he says to you, but his heart is not with you. For you will vomit up the morsels that you have eaten and waste your pleasant words. You know, the, the idea that people want to hoard money so that they can get rich, so that they can have more, makes them often quite difficult to be with, and the money comes to their own harm. And of course, the more you have, the more target you are. People want to sue you. Oh, he's rich. When they take you to court, the jury of your peers, not his, says that, oh, he's rich, you should have some of that. And so you have even more troubles. And we read that parable in the New Testament this morning in Luke 12, The rich man went to great lengths to secure his future. But what happened? Why did he die? Because he didn't give glory to God. Successful men often say to themselves, I did this. My skill, my power, my ability, my diligence, my hard work, my blood, sweat, and tears. And they give no glory to God. They don't acknowledge the part his providence and his grace play in their success. If God did what they should, did what he should to them, they would already be dead. They wouldn't have earned anything. They would be punished in this life. They would have nothing. God in his grace and mercy allows them to live and to succeed and in his providence. Now, many of us, we can look back on a life and say it was God's providence. How did I get my first job? Apparently I'm terrible at interviews. I went to interview after interview after interview, and finally somebody hired me, and I get to work, and there's somebody I knew from class, and he was kind of a lazy guy who liked to go out drinking with the boss when the boss was in town, and he said, we need to hire him, because he works hard. Providence, the person I knew who knew me, happened to work for that company, I had no idea, I didn't know the guy that well, but he knew me. God's providence. How many times has providence worked out in our life? If you get rich, it's not all bad providence. It must have been good. Give glory to God. Proverbs 30 says, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Now, men forget I am successful now, this is me. I don't need God anymore. When we're poor and we're struggling and we're persecuted, what do we do? Get down on our knees and pray, Lord, save me. When he saves us, oh, I got a new job and I'm doing well at it and I'm successful. What a great man I am. What a great woman I am. Well, you are. I'm not a woman. You know what I mean? We forget the part God plays in it. And... We forget the answer to our prayers. 
we should never forget that it was not we who did this alone, but God and his grace and his mercy and his providence to us have been good. We should also never forget what love of the world really is, because that's what we're talking about here. You know, the, the person who pursues wealth and pursues money and loves his money is loving the world. John says this, or James says this, rather, wrong person. James 4, 4 and 5. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity to God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose for no purpose, the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that has made to dwell in us. Friendship with the world involves not just the love of money, not just greed, not just the idolatry of all of that, but the desire to have that friendly, good relationship with God's enemies. They hate God, and you say, well, don't worry about that, we'll be friends. That compromise we've been talking about through the book of 2 Corinthians would fall into that. But if you want to get rich, you're going to suffer. And many men have. They become Christians. They used to want to get rich. Now they want to follow Christ. What happens? They're alienated from their friends. They're alienated from work. They may lose their job. There were stories in Russia back when I was an atheist in college of a general converting to Christianity in uh, Russia and how he was sent to a re-education camp in Siberia because he'd obviously gone mad. That's the way the world looks at it. The love of worldly things estranges us from everyone just as the love of God does. When we love God, the only people who really will love us back are God's people. Well, when you love the world... The only people who love you back is yourself. When you love your riches and your greed and your idolatry to have everything and to be everything, it'll alienate you from everyone, including God, and that hurts you. And that's why it says, wealth kept is hurtful to the keeper. And then he goes on to say, those riches were then lost in a bad venture. That's the next part of, van of the vanity of our wealth and our love of wealth is here today, gone tomorrow. How many people have committed suicide or dropped out of society and out of life because of some major financial reversal? I shared before about a YouTuber we were watching. We were interested, you know, in living the life of having animals and raising our crops and you know, enjoying that kind of more, more quiet life. And we were watching a guy called, who named his channel My Self Reliance. And come to find out, he's building a cabin in the woods that's off grid on his own land where he can catch his own food because he used to be very, very rich. And the market reversed and he lost almost everything. His wife and daughter live in the city in the house, or the burbs in the house. And he's trying to live in a cabin built by his own hands because I can't rely on anything but me. How often have we heard stories like that? People have been burned by their love of money and it disappears. Yet if the father had a son and there's nothing in his hand. He has nothing to leave to his children. We'll be talking about that again a little bit in Second Corinthians as we come to that part where he talks about saving up. 
Parents should save up for their children, not children for their parents. Well, we'll come back to that, but he has nothing. Where's the pride? Where's the prestige? What are you leaving your child? Oh, nothing, because I've lost it all, because I had wealth. Verse 15. He came from his mother's womb, and so he shall go again. Naked he came, and he shall take nothing for his toil, that he may carry away with his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there in him who toils for the wind? You can't catch the wind and you can't bottle it. That's the idea there. You're toiling after nothing. Even if you don't lose it in this life, you're not taking the money with you. You're not going to be a billionaire in heaven. At least not with the billion you saved on earth. Now this is often used as a hopeless empty promise read at funerals. I don't understand why you would want to read that at a funeral, because that's talking about a God, the godless. They have nothing. They can take nothing. It's talking about the hopelessness of life apart from God. We don't want to celebrate that when somebody, particularly a believer, is passed. It's not what you have that takes to eternity. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever one sows, he will also reap. For the one who sows to his flesh from the flesh shall reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Galatians 6, 7, and 8. It's what you do with what you have that counts, not whether you have a lot or a little. Jesus' teaching on the matter was pretty clear. Do not lay up treasure for yourselves on earth, where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And I'm sure you're thinking of the rich young ruler. Jesus tells him, if you'd be perfect, go and sell your possessions, give to the poor, and you have treasure in heaven, come follow me. The man was obviously idolatrous in his love of his money. And he needed to give it all up. Break from your idolatry. Give up your idol, your cash, your property. <coughs> well, when the young man heard that, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He rejected heaven for his riches. And eternity with God is not worth giving up my money here on earth, he thought. And so he was sorrowful. What a wretched man he was at that day and forever, apart from Christ. Paul commands the rich in this present age, he says, charge them not to be haughty, not to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches, what we're talking about here in Ecclesiastes, but set their hopes on God who richly provides for us with everything to enjoy. They are to do as a good do good and be rich in good works and generous and ready to share, thus storing up for themselves treasure as a good foundation for the future. So they will take hold of that which is truly life. This life is not true life. True life comes in eternity when we have our new bodies and when we're living with Christ forever. And we've been purged of every sin and of every desire for sin and we have perfection and holiness for eternity. That's why we can say, 
as Christians, like Paul said, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Philippians 4, 11 through 13. Now what a glorious hope he had, not in the way he was treated in this life, not in the respect he deserved, but in the promise of a future with God. And thus he could endure everything and be happy with everything. You know, happy, content, not suffering, not, not bitter, not anxious, not resentful, but having confidence in God and a joy in whatever God provided him. The horror continues in verse 17 for the one who's fixated on his wealth. Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and much vexation and sickness and anger. Now, how true is this even for Christians today? We, we want more. We need more. We need to keep up with the Joneses. We want to compete in having more wealth than others and having more comfort than others and think that, you know, as a believer, I deserve more than I have. Uh, it's a very popular teaching today. You do deserve that, heretics say. Um, and so they live in bitterness. They live in vexation. They live in sickness and anger. Why? Because their body is eaten up by that desire and that frustration at not having what they want and not having what they feel they deserve. I have heard Christians say, why is God doing this to me? I deserve better. But what does every sin deserve? God's wrath, God's punishment in this life and an eternity of torment in hell. We're getting better than we deserve. I've spoken a lot about this already, but recognizing the vanity of the pursuit of wealth and worldly things is important. We need to recognize that it hurts us. We need to recognize that our frustration, our worry, our anxiety it piles up when we focus on what we want in this world, especially if we realize that that's not necessarily what God wants, so we're not going to get it from him. It separates us from God. So the question might come up to you, what should we do? What can we do? The solution to the emptiness of wealth is mostly given in the next paragraph and in chapter 6, the whole chapter. If you go ahead and read through that, there are many answers given there to what the problem is and what the answer is. Wewin shared a video with me this week about a comedian who was saved from a life of bitter resentment and angry atheism by hearing taped sermons from a local pastor who was preaching on Ecclesiastes. Why? Because he was there. He understood the futility, the meaninglessness of all that he had done and all that he had earned. He was a self-made man, a comedian, built his own comic empire. He had people paying, what, $10,000 to him to a birthday party and do his comedic act. He was there, but it was all empty. It was all meaningless. And as he heard the preacher preach and read the, heard the book of Ecclesiastes read, he was shocked and horrified and amazed and said, yes, that's true. Kind of just like me when I'm hearing all men are sinners and deserve an eternity of torment in hell. I'm like, yes, I understand now. It opened his heart. It opened his life. 
And he found peace and joy in the book of Ecclesiastes of all places in scripture. And I think for those who really are living in the love of the world, Ecclesiastes helps expose the rawness of their sin and corruption. And for all of us who are at times tainted by, I just need something, I, need, I wish I were more profitable, more wealthy, more able, more respected, more whatever, we have the meaning of the emptiness here. The solution is a paradigm change. Instead of thinking of our fulfillment in the case of the things of the world, which is what the world thinks, it's what you have that matters. We need to think of God being our portion and how thankful and grateful we should be that God is our portion. The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. The lions have fallen for me in pleasant places. They cast the lot to determine who got which piece of land in Israel. You could get 100 acres of desert, or you could get 100 acres with an oasis in it, or with a river flowing through it. It makes a big difference. My lines have fallen in pleasant places. I got the good lot. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance, eternal life in heaven. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices and my flesh also dwells secure. Psalm 16, verses 5 through 9. What a great message. If God is our portion, what does the difference does it matter if I can retire at 55 or never? You know, I have God. I have eternal life. I have what he is going to give me in heaven. I'm not going to worry about the things of this life so much or the things of the world. And they seem less important. If your treasure is what you have here, then what happens here is all that matters. If your treasure is in heaven, what happens in eternity is what matters. And my preparation for it, my storing up treasure in heaven, my being right with God, my being able to know that he leads me by the hand and will make me lie down beside still waters. If God is our portion, Eternal life is our portion. If eternal life is our portion, then we become more heavenly minded. And what, what distracts us from God? What distracts us from the word? The desires of the flesh, the things of this world. If we're focusing ourselves on heaven and saying, what I have is what I'm storing in heaven, then I can be content with what God provides me on this world. Psalm 119 speaks often of the word in verse 36 and 37. It says, incline my heart to your testimonies and not the selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. The things of this world are ultimately worthless. We should not make them our God. We look not just to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are unseen, are, the things that are seen are transient. But the things that are unseen are eternal, 2 Corinthians 4.18. So as we conclude today, we should consider this carefully. Do I eat in darkness with much vexation and sickness and anger because of my worldliness? If so, I need to change my ways. And the most telling thing about our being worldly is, yes, putting wealth, worldly things before God, 
but are we stressing about worldly things too much? Show me the vanity of my worldly ways, Lord. Help me to forsake the world and all that is in it. Help me to make you my portion, Lord, is what we should pray. Bless me to be satisfied with you. We need to really examine our hearts because I think most people have a little bit of worldliness in them without even realizing it. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, show me, Lord, the error of my ways. Show me, Lord, my worldliness, my love of those things, and my turning from you that I might repent and turn back. Show me the vanity of worldly things that I might put my hope in you and in heaven and eternity. Help me, Lord, to see that my portion is with you, not with the world, so that I can be satisfied whatever I have and whatever may come. Pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.